Hi, this is Students of S.H.I.E.L.D. Weekly Comic Reviews, issue number nine. Hello, and welcome to the comic show on comics with comics, people who read comics. And uh, I'm Mike. I am Daniel. And I'm Vincent. Now, Vince, for our for our listeners, would you like to apologize for what's happening in South Philadelphia? First of all, I do not live in South Philadelphia, but outside there's like road work, and I'm not even certain what it precisely is causing there this sound. But there's some piece of metal or maybe wood in the middle of the street due to a hole from construction. And anytime a car rolls over it, there's a bump, bump. So um hoping it's not super, super loud. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm pretty sure it's not wood. Like if it was wood, that thing would have broke by now. I don't know. They use wood sometimes. <laughs> Dan, do you respect wood? Yes, I do. Starting with the retro book. The retro DC Comics presents number 24 by Len Wein and illustrated by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. And it's a team up with Superman and Deadman, a.k.a. Boston Brand. So at the beginning of this, we see Boston Brand like having a crisis of conscience. He's got this. Oh, wait, wait. On. I want to interject. Is this what? a team up? Is this is? a team up? Well, it's a team up, kind of, because Deadman is odd. But so. Yeah. He's uh he's like on a cliff side and he's not happy and he's 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 ranting to I'm gonna guess this is like his spirit guide person Ramakushna. I, I I've never seen her before in a Dead Man book, but then again I've not read read a lot of Dead Man, but so like he's ready to quit and just wants to die, but Rama keeps putting him in situations where he has to save people, which shows the importance and the impact that he does have, and this eventually leads him to Metropolis, where he encounters Superman who's battling all these weird seismic quakes around the earth. And this is where the the crazy hack science comes in, where it turns out that a scientist who has heart problems linked his heart to a machine he put at the core of the earth in order to like keep his heart running better. But instead, the machine malfunctioned, and he's just giving the earth a heart attack. So Superman has to go to the center of the earth and repair it, while Deadman has to go into the body of the scientist and keep him alive and battle the reaper so the so he doesn't die in the die in the ensuing battle so it's like this is, i'm pretty sure this is like bronze age we're out of the silver age at this point because i think this is this is in the 70s maybe early 80s what? august 1980 august 1980 okay so august 1980 so very early 80s so <laughs> superman is just has to do we we see him do all these amazing feats like he circles a a building and saves a skyscraper by using a move from the flash where he circles a tornado around it. And then he repairs the man's heart at the end of it by conducting super surgery. And uh, I love this. This was very, very cool. Had a ton of fun with this. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Yeah. I'm pretty much in agreement. It's, it's really fun. The, the super surgery is hilarious. And it's really interesting that this issue actually picks up. Well, it's, it footnotes back to Adventure Comics 566, which was, I mean, Dead Man was running uh, as sh short features in that sh book shared with other characters like Aquaman and stuff. And that, that issue, I don't know if it's most of that run or what, but that issue was by the same exact creative team, Len Wein and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. So occasionally, I mean, a lot. This applies to a lot of the issues of DC Comics Presents and to a similar extent, Brave and the Bold and Marvel did basically the same thing with Marvel 2 and 1 and Marvel Team Up. Oftentimes you'd have like not necessarily an epilogue or a conclusion, 
But you have an issue of these which ties in very closely with a run or in a last appearance or next appearances of the guest starring character, which I think is great. And so this, just for example, and for people who are interested in Dead Man, this issue along with that Adventure Comics run is collected in Dead Man Book 4. Yeah, I love this issue. It is, I I interjected um, because like Dead Man, due to the nature of his powers, at least at this time and everything, or the way he chooses to use them, does not interact with Superman at all. Like they don't ever have a conversation. And even though he does... I mean, he takes over Superman's body for a little bit. He takes over a few other people's bodies. Like 90% of this book, it's just Dead Man kind of like watching Superman and others do stuff and just stalking people since no one can see him. It, it's really it's really fun. I, I, I love Dead Man. And this was, a, this was a pretty interesting issue. And it was both not at all the traditional like superhero team up, um, especially in this era that it's from. But at the same time, it kind of was a perfect snapshot of the era. With Garcia Lopez's art, you saw him emulate a couple of those like crazy panel page layouts that you would see Neil Adams do in the original Dead Man books too. So it kind of blended everything together in a really cool way. Dan, maybe you've heard of him, but do you know anything about Dead Man whatsoever before reading this? No, I I, I do not. And um, you know, reading this issue, having it be having this being the introduction of this character for me was really cool. I mean, really cool premise for a character's ability. But yeah, like it, it was a little confusing for me, like when he originally encountered Superman, because like he was talking and stuff, but like Superman wasn't responding back to him directly about things. So I'm like, what the hell's going on here? But yeah, kind of an interesting character. You know, a little He's got a great costume. Yeah, yeah, a pretty spot-on costume, you know, very simple and stuff. But uh, no, I thought it was a pretty cool little team-up book. Yeah, eventually you might want to check out some some Dead Man. Um, as Mike alluded to, the early appearances, early run is drawn and partially written by Neil Adams. Mm. Um, a relatively younger Neil Adams. I'm not sure how it lines up with Batman, but um, very influential work and pretty cool for a underrated character and then there have been occasional other um cool run short runs or uses of dead man through the years i believe now dead man's kind of a staple character on justice league dark and he kind of had a little bit of a revival during brightest day when he was the local character in that all right so i would say this uh retro book gets thumbs up from all of us more or less not a stinker and we have had a few of those so far so Getting into the books that actually came out this week, I am going to start things with Amazing Spider-Man number 33. This issue opens with the whole 2099 part. Yell is still disoriented, and he's like fighting some big purple dudes, which I don't think everyone else can see. They might not be there. I think he's like maybe phasing between the two timelines slash dimensions or something. It's still not explained. But then he's just not brought up for the rest of the issue. Like I really thought this was like, we we're jumping into 2099, but I, I'd have to double check the checklist because this issue has nothing to do with this 2099 arc. Well, we don't know. It depends on what this 2099 stuff will actually be. But then the rest of the issue, it's mostly continuing where Peter and Teresa were, where they, uh, Silver Sable showed up last issue and they have a, a standoff. And Teresa ends up shooting Silver Sable in the back of the head. Oh no. It was an LMD, and the real Silver Sable is all fucked up and being taken care of by the foreigner. This really major parts of this issue, and I guess this arc for the moment, are actually calling back to one of Dan Slott's final, well, sort of final arcs, 
they the footnote they reference a trade which is slightly interesting i guess that makes more sense nowadays but they reference spider amazing spider-man worldwide volume six and so that's it's still the worldwide era so he has the glowing spider and everything and there was some silver sable arc and rhino is referenced and stuff like that i guess she made a my i don't know she was one of those like retro books or legacy books that, you know, that's the whole confusion why I tried to change it to retro. They did a bunch of like Marvel legacy one shots, but they were like the next issue of canceled series, basically ripping off what DC did with Black as Night. And hers was one of those, but I was never clear which ones of those are flashbacks to when the series originally ended and which ones are supposed to be set in the present. Maybe that entire issue is slightly retconned and that it was an LMD, which would be pretty interesting. The real Silver Sable, she's all fucked up. Um, she's like, well, her hair is gone, which is obviously an iconic part of the character. It's all bandaged up and sick and everything. She's with the foreigner because the infinity formula is going to help her, you know, survive and shit. And she's particularly, well, obviously she wants to survive, but it's particularly of note because Simcaria, her home country, which borders Latveria, they're about to erupt into war and her rival wants to seize control of Sankaria. Pete also leaves and his classmate has devised some multiverse tracking future telling device. Doesn't really make a ton of sense, um, but be interesting to see where it goes. Probably has to connect with this 2099 stuff. Um, otherwise, it's really just a minor subplot in this issue. Chameleon, who handed over the Infinity Formula to Foreigner and Silver Sable, Turns out he's playing both sides, and he's like, hey, um, I forget the character's name. It doesn't matter. Silver Sable's rival, I'll give you some weapons and stuff and stuff. And the and he's also undercover as a politician, which brings us to the end of the issue, where the public and the United Nations, partially fueled on by a chameleon in disguise, they're all moving against Latveria due to alleged human rights abuses and stuff like that. That's basically everything that happens in this issue. What's really odd, and we'll get to this in a few books from now, that the whole Latveria thing, and then especially when in the end of this issue, Dr. Doom shows up to the UN in a limo and gets out and is being aimed at with a gun by, I forget this character's name, it doesn't matter again. But this issue, like, almost lines up with the Doctor Doom miniseries, but not at all, ultimately. But what did you guys think about Spider-Man otherwise, or, or any comments on that? I, I don't have a lot to add other than I'm curious to see where this goes. I think it's still good, and I think Gleason's art is still very top-notch and a welcome breathe on this book. Not to say the art was bad, but it is really cool to see Gleason still drawing Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, just like just like how Vince described it, I mean, I feel like this issue was just a little bit too spread thin, uh, you know, in terms of plot. Like, there was just, they were trying to do a lot of stuff, you know, they're setting up the whole 2099 stuff and the whole Silver Sable arc. And like Vince said, you know, in two books, we'll talk about Doctor Doom. And it seems like such an easy, like, plot to kind of dovetail with. And it's just not executed i don't know if there's going to be any explanation on that but yeah it just felt really like you know pretty easy to do and they kind of screwed up with that whole thing so moving into black cat number six and uh just as a precursor to this plot synopsis writer is jed k artist is mike dowling honestly you know before we get to this synopsis here this is probably the best art i've seen in this series so far by mike dowling i think it's there's a lot of good panels a lot of like 
dynamic arc going on and just a lot of like really emotional like travel scene. foreman leave what did travel foreman leave he was the first artist on this book i guess so mike dowling is was the artist that was on this book so All right. well, that, that explains why i like it <laughs> well it goes to show you how much i keep track of the artist um never mind uh yeah so anyway so you know after the last arc with the fantastic four going into the thing to steal a little token and everything from the negative zone felicia kind of goes on a date with of all people uh batrock i think this is i think that's how you pronounce his name atrock the leaper Backtrack the Leaper, yep, going all the way back to the uh, 60s with, uh, you know, the very first Captain America villains. Yeah, he's Captain America villain. So there's kind of like a little bit of commentary going back and forth between the two of them. They talk about, you know, Felicia talks about Spider-Man and Captain America, or Batroc talks about Captain America as like their main villains. And what's awkward is during this like discussion, like, I guess like Felicia's trying to like prod and see if like Batroc has had any like adversaries that are female that he's been attracted to and he's just like no i'm more attracted to like the art of battle and i don't know if she found that a little weird or whatever but yeah she's like the way that we fight you know and all that stuff is is you know romantic or something like that it was weird anyway so during this whole date we keep panning back to the black fox or not black fox the silver fox sitting in his like little lab because obviously the silver fox and black cat are working together on these jobs that they're doing of stealing all these items the silver fox is pretty much getting attacked by these uh, ninjas these red clad ninjas at first i thought it was the hand and i'm like okay what are they doing inside this book turns out it's actually minions for the guild this like guild that pretty much is supposed to like collect all these items that the black cat is supposed to sell and they get a cut but she doesn't do that she takes it for herself that pissed them off so they're kind of going after her and all the stuff she's collected along with the silver fox so they're kind of using the silver fox to get to her so they end up kidnapping him at the end of this book but during the rest of this book, though, during the date between Felicia and Batroc, uh, they decide to actually just go kidnap a penthouse. They steal stuff. Batroc ends up ends up stealing a blender for some reason, which Felicia Felicia finds weird. Uh, they actually go home and they have sex, and she gets a phone call from one of her lackeys, Bruno, the next day that the Silver Fox has been kidnapped. So the Gill is obviously using this to kind of get to Black Cat to you know get back at her for what she has done you know stealing all these stuff and not giving it to the guild and taking it for herself so it's kind of one of like those han solo type of things where like you know eventually the the toll comes due and she has to face it now so um this series like i said you know is really heating up um i really like it at first it was a little slow to me but now we can kind of see how you know this whole like underplot with the guild has been kind of building up to this showdown between her and the leader so we'll see how it goes but uh i don't know no, no one else read this right no you're the only one that reads this okay well i would suggest i mean it's it's worth i think it's worth jumping on just reading it i think it's good yeah i mean i have heard relatively good things about it um i'll have to flip through a trade or something when it comes out batman number 82 this is by tom king and mikhail janin is the main artist on this one no no dual artists here it's one person jordy belair on colors so this is it big showdown with batman and bane no masks no gimmicks but it totally isn't that because the minute they just throw both of those off batman just immediately gets interference from catwoman <laughs> and he had like two batarangs taped to his back like john mcclain did with the gun at the end of die hard and immediately throws him into bane's neck so the whole they, they have the big fight which we've been building up to and then we still have we have the, the I'm still here moment here echoed here with Bane 
Now flipping it on to Bruce, I really liked all of the planning that goes into this of Bruce and Selena talking back and forth of their strategies, basically cutting down Bane. And while this is all going on, Thomas Wayne takes notice and he just kind of, he, he gets to the location of where they're fighting at, which is underneath Arkham Asylum and just pulls out a gun. He shoots Bruce in the back and then he shoots Bane twice and it's partially implied that Bane's dead here, but I don't think that's true. But now Thomas is here with the wounded Bruce and a probably near dead Bane and Selena's all alone. Um, I liked all of this. Uh, Janin's art in the fight scene was really great, and I still am enjoying how the echoes of the whole run and the callbacks are now completely hitting hitting the moments for where we're going to go from here. Yeah, I felt like this issue really moved fast. No, I just... <laughs> I felt like this issue, like I read this issue in like six minutes. It was that good. It was a big fight. It was that quick. What? Well, it was a big fight. Yeah, it was just a big giant fight. But um, no, nah, I, I think it was. I think it was really well executed. And yeah, I don't know. Did you say that? Did are they actually? Like, did he actually shoot them with a bullet, or is it just like a, a taser or what? Oh, it's bullets. <laughs> oh, so they are dead. Well, no, Bruce is still alive. Okay, yeah, they're gonna get out of that. Yeah, and then. Um, we'll- when Thomas Wayne still doesn't get beaten when the whole Bat family takes him down. Yeah. Well, the whole Bat family is unconscious exactly. on his floor. The, left the last issue is that Thomas got was able to beat all of them. There's some fun moments in the fight. Selena says, hey, Cat got your tongue. And Bruce nearly breaks Bane's back, which was... Yeah, it was awesome. which, which was... I mean, it's still a hype moment, but could have been... You know, was very close to being a very, very hype moment. Um, And then for a second, I thought, I mean... I knew Thomas was coming and stuff, but I thought it was like, I thought Bane pulled some like reversal or something. Um, it was pretty good fight choreography uh, in terms of comics in this style of comic books. Yeah, and then and then Thomas also in the end says, "Get Psycho Pirate." Also, I mean, I, I know it's obvious, but has it been? But has it been previously formally revealed that Thomas's um alfred is ventriloquist yeah it's been ventriloquist the whole time okay yeah i mean i should say though the the breaking of the back is another callback because selena broke bane's back at the end of i am suicide so now it's okay. this time well would have done it before he got you know shot in the back we've <laughs> <laughs> got, got three more three more issues and then 12 all right buff of the vampire slayer number nine still in the hellmouth crossover this is jordy belair writing and David Lopez on art. So it Brian Hill's doing this with Angel and Jordy Blair's doing this with Buffy, where since Buffy and Angel in Hell, you're gonna find out what Buffy and Angel are doing in the Hellmouth book, while the other characters' books, they're basically gonna focus on the supporting cast. Same thing here. So Blair's taking the time to explore all Buffy's supporting cast. And we have Joyce's, Joyce Summers, Buffy's mom, coping with the attack at the museum by Drusilla, wondering where Buffy is. She, the cover right now is that she's on a school field trip, but in reality, she's in a hell dimension with Angel, trying to close the hell mouth. Xander's on, the only one of the like the crew going out on uh, Vampire Patrol because Willow's studying magic and like coming to terms with the fact that she's lost a part of her soul and going through some relationship issues. And Giles is going like super like mad and like losing losing himself and we're not entirely sure why that's happening um but he's like lashing out at jenny calendar and stuff which is very like un giles like for the way the way it's going so xander's the only one that's kind of protecting sunnydale right now since he's got that new half creed vampire powers this is all kind of like checking in on everyone and then the end is like possibly a tease for kendra the vampire slayer so interesting to see where this all goes because usually you only get another slayer when one has died 
and maybe it's implying that Buffy's dead since she went to the hell dimension. So we'll see how it all works out, but still good. I, um, on the writing standpoint, David Lopez, the, the faces in this are just, they're so bad. I, I don't like to be so critical like that, but I wish they would get a better artist on this book to draw faces that aren't so overly exaggerated and like eyes being misshapen and like not level. It's blowing my mind how this passes through editorial. All right. So Daredevil volume six, number 13, writer Chip Zdarsky, artist Mark Chiquetto. Marco Chiquetto. Marco Chiquetto. My bad. Sorry, I butchered your name, buddy. You're not his buddy, pal. I am not. I'm not I'm not any artist or writer's buddy or pal. This whole issue is circling around the Kingpin and how he basically covers up a murder. You know, pretty much he has Wesley take care of it, has him clean up the area and basically frame it as a suicide. So that's going throughout this whole issue. Uh, meanwhile, Elektra and Daredevil are trained together. And I gotta say, you know, I wrote down here um, in my notes, the artist for the, you know, uh, Marco Chiquetto, he nails Elektra. I mean, she looks amazing um, in, in his own special way. Like, you know, when he draws her, like it's not harkening back to Miller or Brubaker or uh, Bendis. It's kind of like this own like iteration that I kind of like, um, it's a mix of stuff that you recognize. Well, but yeah, there's some great things. From what? like Catcher Lives Again. Would say? She's got like the headband, which is the first yeah. time I've had that in a long time. Yeah, so it's, a, it, I mean, there's just some great art going on in this book. I really like that. Daredevil's kind of piecing together how to be Daredevil again um, because he's been this, he's been in this other role and kind of retired the role as Daredevil for a while. Electra's kind of serving as his mentor, kind of like his stick figure, pun intended, not really. Um, but yeah, so that's going on. At the same time, we also have the owl who, you know, after you know, finding out about the Kingpin, how he's basically like not really running crime anymore around the city. He's basically taking control of that whole scene again. And there's a scene where he's walking with the lead with the uh, leader of the Libris family and talking to them in the middle of a library. And he basically like demonstrates his power by just like shooting people in a library in front of her. And he's just like, and she's, and he's just like, you know, this is my land now, you know, you can either step aside or be killed. So, that's kind of cool. I mean, eventually, I feel like the owl is going to get put into its, his place because he always does because he's a punk. Um, and then the last little area of this issue we get here is Detective North being sent on leave from the police department. And as he's walking away, he gets into like a little skirmish with like these like these punks and like you know pick it on this like poor, uh, homeless guy and he kind of stops them so it's kind of just like a little showing of his character and stuff like that and he, the issue ends with daredevil meeting up with direct or detective north asking for help so we'll see where this goes i gotta say i gotta give you know chip Zdarsky credit for spinning back you know the clever way of spinning back you know the whole thing with the murder with the kingpin because i was definitely expecting this just to descend back into like the kingpin becoming the kingpin of crime again and you know because daredevil's always leaned towards back being daredevil again so i was like it's only fitting that the kingpin becomes the kingpin again but they kind of did a little you know twist on us there and kept the status quo the way it is with him being the the mayor of new york so Kind of curious to see what you guys thought of that. Well, I, I love this issue. I knew from the solicits this was going to be heavily focused on Wilson Fisk. And from what happened in the previous issue, you had to do it that way. You couldn't just ignore that that ending. And everything with Wesley and that was just fantastic of the Kingpin like feeling scared for the first time in forever and not knowing how to deal with that and just having this huge breakdown. And then juxtaposing that with Daredevil trying to put himself back together with Elektra trying to help 
pick that back up and basically build a better daredevil because Electra says to him she's like you've never had an actual solid plan it's like okay i'm gonna fight crime just like and just like no there's no end goal to anything it's just like okay i'll dress up in this costume and fight crime there's no detailed plan so Electra's trying to help him fight that find that like that area to it she's like and i, I liked all that stuff all of the Electra stuff um was really really good and I'm, I'm excited to see where the Detective North stuff goes because we, we've had the cat and mouse with Matt and North. And now we're finally going to have that face-to-face meeting where I think North is eventually going to come become a good guy. But in, in what way, I don't fully know. But I don't want to just abandon this to have it go, okay, Matt's not going to be a parole officer. He probably is going to have to end up becoming a lawyer by the end of this somehow. But I like the status quo of where we're at and with – but, yeah, all the stuff with Wilson Fisk is absolutely brilliant. And Marco Cicchetto is one of the best artists that is working in Marvel today. All right. So as I readjust myself here, uh, Dr. Doom number two, writer by um, – writer by <laughs> – written by Christopher Cantwell and art by Salvador LaRocca. So pretty much the beginning of this issue is – Dr. Doom getting framed for a black hole that occurred on Antalon, which is um, on the moon. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's like the area like with like the, where the humans are, right? Or no, is it like, is it like a it colony? Space, it was, yeah, some space station that was like doing research on the dark side of the moon. Okay, okay. That, that's what was kind of throwing me there So for a second. So pretty much they, you know, the world pretty much comes to the real, like the conclusion that the only person who could have done something like this is Dr. Doom. So beginning of the issue has him pretty much being taken into custody. And what's interesting about this is we actually see Dr. Doom without his mask for most of the issue, which I think is a little interesting. You see just the top part of his face, though. You see his eyes and, like, the bridge of his nose. But I thought it was interesting how they just kept that there the whole time. No real, like, shock value with, like, them showing it to us, I guess, at this point. Um if you were talking about like 40 years ago, 40 years ago, people would have been like, Oh my God, that's crazy. But yeah, so he's being taken into custody by a bunch of different like Avengers, you know, characters, fantastic four stuff. Uh, Herbie's there representing the fantastic four. And Dr. Doom makes a comment about Reed, Reed Richards not being there because you know, he's a, he's a you know wimp or whatever. Dr. Strange is there and we get a good, a really cool conversation in the Quinjet on the way back to the UN um, where Dr. Strange and Dr. Doom are talking about this whole thing. And Dr. Doom's like, I swear on my mother's grave that I did not do this. And something, you know, something gets brought up about, you know, the devil and stuff like that. And Dr. Doom makes a mention of, you know, you almost left me down in hell um, one time, which obviously references triumph and torment. So that's kind of cool how they included that in there. Pretty subtle, I thought. Um but yeah, so as they're being transferred, as he's being transferred in the Quinjet, Kang shows up all of a sudden, just like he did in the last issue, and break breaks out uh, Doctor Doom from the Quinjet. You know, Doctor Strange, all those people get knocked out, and Doctor Doom escapes. And the first person he goes to to, to you know hide from is Morgan Le Fay, who is a like sorceress, you know, interest that he had you know for a while, and he uses her shower, gets another mask. And all that stuff, and kind of chills. In the meantime, Herbie kind of goes to. So basically, at this point, the world knows that Doctor Doom is out 
you know, running around and he's, you know, wanted for his crimes that he supposedly committed. So Herbie goes to a, like a college or whatever and re, um, recruits Blue Marvel. And he's kind of like talking to him about like why he was chosen. He's like, you were the best available person for this job. And Blue Marvel's like, oh, thanks a lot. Like that means that that's a, kind of a backhanded compliment. So we don't really get a lot of resolution to that though. Uh, there's, they just kind of go off to go find Dr. Doom and that's the end of it. They don't re really actually find him because as Dr. Doom and Morgan Le Fay are walking down an alley to meet up with this guy named Witness, I believe, to find out about you know Dr. Doom's future, where he's going to end up, all this stuff that's going on with Kang the Conqueror. Um, as they're in this alley, you know, Dr. Doom asks this guy named Witness about what his you know, um, fate will be. And he's like, it's coming really soon. He's like, it's going to be really sad. It's going to be the saddest day in history. And just as that happens, uh, Dr. Doom gets sniped in the head by Taskmaster. And just in reference to what Vince said earlier, this, I just don't know where this fits in because, you know, on one hand, we, when I was first reading this issue, I'm like, oh, this is going to line up with Amazing Spider-Man because he's being taken to the UN to testify for all this stuff. So he's going to land, they're going to get out of the car, and that's how it's going to match up with Amazing Spider-Man. But then he gets broken out, and he goes missing, and then he's hiding, and then he goes in an alley and gets shot. So I'm not sure, like Vince said, I don't know where this is going to line up, but it's getting a little messy. Um, but overall, I thought this was a really good issue. I mean, if you take that and just ignore it for what it is, I thought this is a pretty good second issue. You know, and um, I like it. What do you guys think? It's a very weird book where I think it's still trying to find its feet, but I do like what's going on, and some of the ideas being presented here are really kind of cool. Like, I liked every one of that, that whole extraction team when they're loading Doom on the helicarrier. They all had an exact reason and job for why they were there, and I thought that was really cool. Um, I when, I was liking it. I felt like the more... Morgan Le Fay stuff was a little odd. Like it was just because it's a side of doom. You don't normally see, nor am I like, he was almost like really kind of cushy with her. And I felt like that was a little odd, especially because we just saw Morgan Le Fay and Excalibur. So I don't know how either of this is happening at the same time, but Morgan Le Fay is a sorcerer and she can do whatever the hell she wants. And then like, yeah. And then she gets shot in the head and it's a hell of a hanger to go leave off on. Uh, I'm enjoying it though. Like, I can't. Wills has a good handle on Doom. I feel for the most part, but I'll turn it over to Vince. Yeah, I, I like some of the ideas here. I I like the first issue, the first issue a lot more. Um, there, as we said, there's weird continuity questions if that even exists anymore. Both in reference to Amazing Spider-Man, and um. And also, uh, well, mostly, what was the other one you referenced? Oh, and Excalibur. Yeah. But also, well, I'll get to the, the other part net later. But, um, but beyond just, you know, Doom being like showing up at the UN and uh, also having snipers aimed at him in both issues, Silver Sable is here. And, you know, there's no indication of anything, but you could no prize her at least and say, oh, this is one of the LMD things. Yeah, that's all right. I was when I read that, I was like, OK, write that off as the LMD. I can live with that. 
Yeah, and then there's just like I don't know. There's some like characterization stuff where, and and also just other things where it this is just begging for nitpicks. Um, I think Doom quoting Shakespeare's Richard the Third that's fine, but having devoting an entire page and a half to the Beatles and Doom saying he prefers John Lennon, I'm like, yeah, yeah let's not. It's like well, that was so odd. And then I'm not following Fantastic Four, but if this is what Herbie looks like now, don't like it. Very off model of how I think Herbie should look. I think Blue Marvel, I think he's written kind of fine, but I think the the way that he's positioned within the story, and, and especially in relation to Reed, even though Reed is never seen on panel, kind of iffy. Um, I, I liked... Like the first page, it's like thank you for covering my face, um, because when they when they get Doom captive, uh, they take off his mask or whatever, and but they give him like a scarf to wear, but the scarf isn't covering enough, and then later he t just takes off the whole thing. And you just see Doom's whole face, and but then he gets he puts on a mask, and then the, the major nitpick here is that a bullet punctures possibly twice over through Doom's helmet. Uh, okay. Through the map. Morgan Le Fay did say that was an old, old model helmet. So the old, old models when Doom was like even more formidable. I, I know I'm nitpicking, but if, if you want to make this, you know, if you want to make Doom one of the biggest villains, I mean, I mean, even recently, like Doom's armor can take like a punch from the infinity armor or some shit like yeah. but you know she said it was damaged and shit so and and you know what if let's say taskmaster is using some vibranium adamantium bullet shit and all right cool yeah well I, yeah that's the part. but i'm saying you know if, if this was a mini series published in like 1977 john byrne would have retconned this doom appearance in his fantastic four run as a doom bot <laughs> I mean, for all um, we know, the whole run could be a Doom bot. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't put it against it. It could be an interesting final paid final issue reveal. Um, Doom was behind the scenes the entire time. But also, I feel like, wasn't there a Spider-Man, like a very quick Spider-Man cameo in the yeah, first issue through? Yeah, well, he's hanging out with Morgana Le Fay. He's in this, but I think he was in the last one for like one panel as well. So maybe that's We'll, we'll see next issue whether we see Spider-Man. And then the final, like, third continuity thing is that next issue teases Mephisto. And a book later on the show, the next issue teases Mephisto. So Marvel's kind of confusing. I mean, they don't care about continuity. Hell no. Which is weird because when we get into Immortal Hulk, that book does care about continuity. <laughs> I think Actually, it's matter of fact, uh, I don't know. Do you guys have any final Doctor Doom thoughts? No. <laughs> okay. So, matter of fact, that issue that I was referring to that we get to is the next issue. Yeah. Well, it had to have been. <laughs> Ghost Rider number two. I missed talking about the first issue. I was not on that show. I gave hot, hot. Huh? You gave your thoughts on the on the issue on the on the show you did oh. miss. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So yeah, I'm very excited about this series in general. 
Um, obviously, Ed Brisson writing this second issue. Aaron Cooter is the artist, but they explain on the letters page that he has had like neck pain and it just like came to a breaking point while he was working on this issue. And so they pulled in three people to help out in this issue Craig Young, John Lucas, and Luciano Vecchio. Um, and Cooter got um, whatever help he needed and hopefully should be recovering and fine and better. He, he saw a doctor, physical therapy, etc. So we'll see whether there's also artistic help on following issues. But I was I was interested to see this. I'm, I'm sure, you know, he was halfway through the issue when it became a big deal. But I do know that at some point through this series, it's effectively a series of two artists, which, I, you know, we know, especially through the, all the DC books that ship so much and Amazing Spider-Man, things like that. We know that that's a thing nowadays is to have two artists or more on a book. And Juan Fergari, who did the Symbiote of Vengeance one shot and also did like a few pages in the back of number one, he, he'll be the second artist. Um, so uh, I'm, you know, it'd be interesting. I, I don't know why they didn't have him fill in some of the pages, but I'm sure he was working on number three or something. Um, but that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't think the art really suffered from it. Um, there are a few, there's a little bit of inconsistency. There are, there are one or two pages or panels that are a little iffy, but overall they, they all kind of imitate Cooter's style. And I think this issue looks fine. Um, so here, Johnny, Johnny is rounding up demons and Lilith back in hell. Lilith is against him. and. I don't think I mentioned this when I came back on. Maybe I did. I don't really like her redesign much, partially because the original by Andy Kubert is just ridiculous, and I love it. Um, but whatever, they're, they're going this direction. And so then Stacy Dolan shows up to the bar, which is called the Fade Away, to question Danny because a patron of his was found burned up to a crisp in his apartment by himself. And so she thinks, of course, it's got to be a ghostwriter. And she questions maybe if Danny is not control, like not in control or doesn't know what the writer is doing. But Danny's like, no, it wasn't me. And then Johnny takes basically an entire cruise ship hostage. But the cruise passengers, at least some of them, are more demons. And he presents it that they've stolen people's bodies and basically condemned those people to hell, their souls. Um, and then there's an interesting lore thing. I forget whether this was introduced last issue, but Johnny is now calling one of his powers the damnation stare as opposed to the penance stare. And that ties with his new status quo and back to the damnation story arc, which part the the Johnny half of this series is kind of sort of following up from that. And Danny shows up to try and stop him. They have a quick little exchange. Stacy tries to stall the eager cops from storming the boat. And then we get more fight. They race across rooftops on their motorcycles. And then the issue ends with Johnny holding Danny over the river on a bridge. And he takes the spirit of vengeance from him and drops him in the river. And um, not to get like too deep into lore and stuff like that. 
I'm not quite certain how that works and everything. I mean, Danny's spirit, um, which this was a major mystery, and this is why Johnny started appearing in the 90s Ghost Rider series to figure out how there's another Ghost Rider, because Johnny's spirit of vengeance is Zarathos, which is a demon and kind of sort of like evil-ish um, on a certain level. And he didn't know what was up with Danny. And later it was revealed that Danny's spirit of vengeance or whatever you want to call it is noble kale the ancestor of danny and johnny and not really a demon at all um so and i don't think that actually matters at all um but thought i'd note that interesting to see you know how much they reference that if at all and the next issue tease as i talked about with dr doom is mephisto which will be interesting to see because Mephisto is appearing all over the place, and obviously through damnation and everything, um, and Johnny's new status quo makes the most sense to appear here. Um, what did you guys think as this series rolls into issue two? You mean issue three? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what do you think of issue two? There you go. I I enjoyed it, but. I, I don't know where the footing on this is. I it, it, This was so Johnny-centric. I, I was promised a Danny book. And this was like 90% Johnny. So... It, it makes you wonder if they're just like gonna like... If this will end... This like or arc is gonna end in him like getting killed or something. So like, I feel like this is gonna go six issues and it's not gonna be an ongoing. I really hope not. Um, really, but here's the question. Because I like that first issue, and I I'm on like treading water on the second one. It was like I don't know what this is. Okay. Here's the thing. So, as far as all the information that we are presented, like Johnny's like 100% in the right. Do you agree? He is, but he's also like going around destroying shit. So. Yeah, I mean, he's being aggressive and and everything like that, but. He seems to like what he's doing is accurate. He's doing it for the right reasons. Uh, these demons are like killing people, sending them to hell and shit. And he's dealing with that. He explains the entirety of that to Danny. And Danny's just like, fuck you. Well, Danny was, well, Danny makes a good point where he's like, if they were evil, I would have felt something. So that's, well, yeah, there's, that. So that, there's the mystery uh, there, I guess. Yeah, that's the mystery. But I, I'm interested to see where it goes. I like both of these characters. It's still you're still kind of riding the high of like, wow, it's still fun to see these characters after having them be so long being locked away in a box somewhere. Yeah. Um, and just a, a note, because I noted this when that arc ended, the that Avengers arc really doesn't wrap around to this at all. No, it doesn't. Not in the slightest. That, that arc definitely did touch on Johnny's status quo, but no connection whatsoever to Danny. And even the characterization is, it's I, it's a little bit off, but this issue kind of brought them slightly close. I was going to say, like, Johnny felt more evil in Avengers, and now it's kind of getting to a closer merry point to that. Yeah. So that's that. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Um, we'll see you know, the actual direction of the series, as Mike said, it's still not 100% clear, you know, how they're going to balance these two characters, who's the true protagonist and everything like that. 
hopefully we have enough issues to figure that out. Thing. <laughs> so, Immortal Hulk, number 26. The Hulk has declared war on humanity. This is still Al Ewing and Joe Bennett going. This is their 24th issue together. There's been two fill-ins on this, really special guest artists. But still, this team is cranking out issues like There's No Tomorrow. This snuck up on me this week. I forgot this even came out. But, yeah, Hulk declares war on humanity, but not really. He's since overtaking over Shadowbase, um, the Hulk slash Bruce Banner has been f- getting funding to start smashing up the places that are causing the planet harm. The, the, this green Hulk wants to send the world into a more greener future, so the planet has a hope of surviving. But in, in the current outlook from Bruce Banner, it's that no, the, the planet is going to die, and humanity needs to be stopped. And this is all taking place in a restaurant in Massachusetts with the Hulk talking to Amadeus Cho, um, who was the totally awesome Hulk and the the main Hulk star of his book while Bruce was depowered, I think, around, slash dead around the Civil War II era. So this is the first time we've seen Amadeus Cho in the series. And so the Hulk, uh, Bruce Banner sent out like a public message to the, to the world saying, hey, this is what I'm doing. And it's he's become like a rallying point for people that are doing protests. They're spray painting the Hulk's name um, and like support. So he's kind of started up this movement, which is kind of really, really neat to to play with as the general public are turning into fans of the Hulk and wanting to save the planet. And Bruce firmly, but he believes humans can't be saved. He, um, He even mentions like there's people like Tony Stark, and uh, Reed Richards and even um, at, uh, Blue Marvel who've been trying to institute like different green technologies, but it's never worked out well. So it's like, I respect you got like this younger age of heroes to try to help, but he doesn't really have much hope, but with his newfound like uh, facilities, he can go out and stage and smash up the things that are harming the planet until he can figure out how to save it. And he's, t- he's turned his eyes on Roxxon. Uh, the Roxxon Corporation is going to be his first big hit. And there is a mysterious cook that was talking to Bruce before Amadeus Cho came into the restaurant. And it's revealed that it was none other than Namor. And so Namor and the Hulk have struck up a partnership as they may, they make it a, they allude to their past being on the defenders. Uh, so they were never a team. They were the unteam. So I thought that was really cool. And it's revealed that the head of Roxxon is the Minotaur. So the Hulk's going to go up against the Minotaur and uh, the next arc here. Um, this is laying the groundwork for, I'm assuming, what is now part two of Al Ewing's tenure on this book, heading into its big second act, and it still is really, really good. All right, so Justice League, number 35. I don't – this is not the end of this arc. I mean, I think the arc is really going until Snyder's end, which I think since we – Maybe since we last recorded, that's been revealed, um, or we haven't mentioned it, this run will end with 39, which is an odd number, but whatever. Um, and then it'll flow into whatever the fuck. But this is supposed to be, I guess, a Legion of Doom issue, um, which it used to be that Tinian would write the bulk of those, and it would focus more on the Legion of Doom. I guess it's a Legion of Doom uh, in issue insofar that the legion of doom has won and like you know through the justice doom war 
but it's really, you know, totally a Justice League issue. Um, and the art here is by Francis Manipole, which is nice to see. He's contributed a little bit throughout to Snyder's Justice League run. And there's a quick, like, interaction between Aquaman and Mera here, and it footnotes Aquaman 49. And I'll just say that I'm, like, pretty certain that doesn't match up, doesn't make any sense whatsoever as someone who's reading Aquaman and its it past. It doesn't match up at all. Um, so the doom symbol, the stupid symbol in the sky, which is in every fucking DC book, except for the ones that don't have to follow it because they're special. It's the everywhere. It's everywhere. Or, yeah, it's everywhere around the earth. It's on other planets. It's in other multiverses. And so the issue takes a moment to kind of spin the spotlight around. So we see certain characters in, in different places on the earth and elsewhere reacting. And I guess I didn't know that Jeff Johns moved the Marvel family to Philly officially, or maybe I forgot. That wasn't in the New 52, right? Is that a, is that a rebirth thing? Uh, no, I believe it's a New 52 thing. Okay, because obviously it is in the movie, even though it's not 100% explicit, I don't remember. No, it is. They're flying okay. around Philadelphia. <laughs> Well, I know you see it. Um, then there's like a whole panel spotlight on only Catman, which is very strange. And it's in like Tanzania, which I think is also where Vixen is from. So like just show Vixen, who is a Justice League member, but it's Catman. Uh, very strange. Russia, we see some Rocket Reds and a few other multiverses and other planets in this universe including Gotham by Gaslight, which gets fucking destroyed by Perpetua. So RIP Batman Gotham by Gaslight. This is the sequel to that classic book. Oh, um, that book already has a sequel. Well, this is the next one. This is the next appearance. Um, well, and there's some like convergence shit in the middle too. Uh, Hawk Girl and Shane are stranded in space and they uh, get in touch with Batman and they're going to go back and then Luther sabotages them and then they're more stranded in space. Um, I guess we'll get back to them later. And now that that connection is cut off and everything, Perpetua has taxed Lex, Lex Luthor with going to kill the Justice League, just all of them. Um, that's basically this issue. I didn't. It doesn't really do. It doesn't really like advance much. Um, it's just like stewing in the status quo, I guess. I mean, it's still fine, and the Francis Manipal art was definitely a gem. But otherwise, this issue, I mean, not very noteworthy or monumental. No, but I, I'm still having fun with it. Like I'm having fun reading a Justice League book in the first time in forever. So that's. That's the yeah. big case for me. Like I'm, I'm enjoying this arc a lot. So we're at the part where our heroes are at their lowest point. Um, Starman's dead, and we we don't know what's going to happen with Shane and Hawkgirl. So I'm, I'm interested to see how it turns out. It looks like unwinnable odds, and I'm, you know, I'm hoping Superman gets to punch Lex Luthor in the face and win. <laughs> so, and then we'll do Crisis Times Five or whatever the hell the next big event that. Scott Snyder's planning. We we got that moment with the Batman who laughs in there, and I, I really hope that doesn't become the Batman who laughs saves the day, and I think that's what he's going to do. 
I'm going to hate it. Uh, that would be very strange. Yeah, I'm going to hate it if that's what happens. That's just... All right. Yes. So Lois Lane, number five. This is Greg Rucka and Mike Perkins still. So Lois is heading to Washington, D.C., still investigating the death of that Russian journalist, Mariska Voronova. And this whole issue is pretty much Rutka just stopping to explain the rules and laws of how journalists have to operate um, as Lois is getting into this argument with a guy in the plane thinking that all journalists make stuff up. And then while she's talking to her informant, uh, I, I believe as a senator in D.C., she's like, oh, can all this be off the record? She's like, you're still going to publish that. She's like, no, off the record means this, this, and this. I can't publish it, but it can put me in the push me in the right direction of someone who won't do it say that so like it's it's rucka just like here's how journalism works here you go and then also having renee montoya like go into the cd underbelly once again and extract information and string up a guy and interrogate him i thought this issue was it's fine as a person who majored in journalism this is like yeah this is pretty bare bone stuff to to know and um I thought Mike Perkins' art, where there are some pretty goofy-looking faces in here. Um, we're five issues into this. It's twelve issues. Let's let's get let's get a move on. This is basically where I'm at with this. Uh, Wonder Twins number nine. Mark Russell, Stephen Byrne, Zan, and Jaina are recruited by a mission by Batman uh, instead of being the Hall of Justice tour guides today. They're going to back up Superman on a mission in the fictional country of Zargonia. Um, helping refugees escape the country. Great moment by Superman here where he's arguing with their army um, where he says, well, hey, I'm an immigrant as well. Um, that was a really, really cool moment by Mark Russell. And so Zan and Jaina are like kind of support getting all the refugees into one of the uh, javelin jets uh, to being flown by Batman to help. So like they create a flood to like cut off the cut off the battle lines. And it was really, really cool. There's a funny moment where uh, Zan's getting shot by bullets um, cutting through the water and they're still hurting them, which was pretty funny. But getting back to their apartment, um, as they have polymath just up there now, um, Jane is still trying to help her. Explains that her father is still alive and was sent to the Phantom Zone. And we get a kind of deep dive on the history of the Wonder Twins family and how their great grandfather was like one of the worst people in their alien race. And that's why they left Earth is because they couldn't, they wanted to get completely away from their shadow. Um, so. But they also used the Phantom Zone on their planet, so that's how Jaina thinks they can get Philomath out and say to revive him for Polly. And Polly reveals that she was at the high school reunion in the last issue to get a computer program her father had worked on that was broken, and she was able to fix it. The program was – it's called, like, Kernel 86, and it's this program that was supposed to be, like, a vaccine for Earth. So you get, like, commentary on how vaccines uh, – are good and they don't kill children. Um, that's Mark Russell's commentary on this one, but the program was messed up and couldn't read things right. So it's like, no vaccines kill humans. Don't save humans. So then trying to get that program, but it was on a hard drive in their estate and there was an estate sale that's now ended up into the hands of these people who bought it for just 50 bucks. Cause they wanted a hard drive and they booted it up. So I'm sure sh crazy shenanigans will help. Uh, will come from that in the next issue, but still, Wonder Twins continues to be great. Really, really love it. This is it's such a good book, and I'm going to be upset when it's over because it's really, really fun. Um, I'd like to see Mark Russell tackle 
uh, bigger characters in the DC universe when this is done because he writes a really good Batman and Superman. Um, Young Justice number ten. This is by Bendis, and we have John Timms on art, and then Nick Darrington, Nick Darrington as well for the Ginny Hex origin segments. So the last issue was the origin of Teen Lantern. Bendis is taking the time to do this once again with Ginny Hex, who her first appearance was in one of the Batman Universe books, but back when it was Batman Giant, just in the Walmart specials. But her origin is now revealed here. And nothing much to her. She's just like a Southern girl who goes to high school and like stopped a robbery. And her mom is like, I think runs a convenience store and is just a chain smoker. And she's like, all right, here's this trunk of your stuff that is your great grand's uh, great, great grandfather's. Um, he was Jonah Hex and he like did some superhero stuff in his time. And she opens up like the secret chest, which of this trunk that we've seen so much what's in there. And Vince, this is the part where you're going to go crazy because here are some of the items that apparently Jonah Hex just has and kept for all these years. So in this trunk are the Adam's belt, a hero dial, and I think two of Adam Strange's ray guns. I, I hate this. I hate this so much because Jonah Hex wouldn't keep any of that. Um, while the team is still stuck out and like their Earth 3 fending off the young crime syndicate, they eventually team back up with that world's Batwoman, who's Stephanie Brown. And they send them back to the regular time where they run into Naomi. And that's the big thing for this issue is that Naomi was going to join the team and that's right on the cover, but no, she's on the final page. And uh, this, this firmly confirms that Tim Drake's new identity is just Drake and with one of the worst costumes I've ever seen. I hate this so much and I don't know why I keep reading this book. It's like hurting me at this point and I should drop it, but I probably won't. I, I hate this. <laughs> Sounds fun. Uh, yeah, that trunk thing doesn't make any sense. But no. I liked the heck, though. Yeah, I, th I think it's it's probably just like Bendis and the artist trying to be cute or something, and they just don't care about what it, you know, means, you know, by showing it on a page within a story, but whatever. So next we've got the X-Men Corner, and just by coincidence they are in the correct order both alphabetically and according to hickman's reading orders hey. so we're going to start with new mutants number one this is co-written by hickman and ed brisson i listened to a jonathan hickman like podcast thingy jig and the way he explained it actually is that new mutants is an ed brisson book full stop hickman is just going to jump in and co-write a select few issues in this series to like set up certain things for the overall line or something that'll come later i'm not sure and he'll he may or may not do that on some other series soon or down the line as well um like he'll just barge into your series and co-write some issues with you if he needs to set something up i don't know um, that's how it was implied. Art here is by Rod Reese. Uh, but back to that, I'm not really sure. And obviously, I'll go through what happens in the issue. In the issue, but I'm not really certain like what major major thing is hinted at or set up here that applies like it was important for Hickman. I'm not sure. But art here by Rod Reese. Um, 
which I want to talk about him real quick before I get into the plot. Um, I think this issue looks great. The characters are all mostly on point uh, visually and everything. There's some cool Easter eggs, um, which both of those things also part of the script. And I think Rod Reese is an interesting pick for New Mutants, particularly because he's kind of got like a tiny bit of Bill Sienkiewicz in him, especially like certain certain segments. Like there's a moment where, and I'll get to it specifically, but Magic gets like hit in the nose. And then there's like a panel where she like freaks out because she just got hit in the nose. And that panel was very Sienkiewicz-like. And, but at the same time, this issue like, and I don't know if it was Reese's decision or if maybe editorial or Hickman passed along the note. I feel like there's a tiny bit of like, uh, not necessarily photo reference. Well, photo reference, essentially. I feel like Wolfsbane looks a tiny, tiny bit like Maisie Williams in this issue. I can which agree is, with that. Which is, which is strange because, of course, you know, that movie... Who knows if it will ever release and exist. It has a release date. I guess. So, we and on that note, we open with a major focus on Wolfsbane being brought back to life. And there's like a quick philosophical exchange with Karma and then a panel of Wolfsbane just kind of chilling. And very, I mean, it's a, for an X-Men fan, a great opening. But very, it brings lots of questions up. Is this shade at Matt Rosenberg and his run? Or maybe was Rosenberg instructed to job it out and sloppily kill her to set this moment up? I don't know. Very confusing. Maybe it's totally mutual respect, but just responding to the fan reactions. Uh, but some interesting stuff to think about in those pages. And they're nice pages. And then Mondo is here and Mondo, his powers are, he can like connect with organic or inorganic matter. Um, and he channels Krakoa. So Krakoa gets a chance to talk to Cypher and there's nothing of import. So they just stop. So Mondo is a Generation X character, kind of complicated, was a straight up villain allied with Black Tom and Juggernaut. But Black Tom created a plant-based clone of Mondo to join and infiltrate Generation X early on. And that Mondo died. But it being a plant, both literally and metaphorically, and, you know, like the real one being a bad guy, that was all retcon 60 issues later. Um, so I'm guessing, I don't know that you guys know who that knew you know much about Mondo but I guess he's going to be a major part of this team and on that note Black Tom is in this book he um he is like actually wait that's the other book um I got my got, got a little mixed up um and then Danny and Sunspot have this moment where they're kind of just like walking through Krakoa and it's basically an exposition dump but it's more like a philosophy dump I feel like it, I feel like this conversation is slightly stilted. It's them just like slight, like sort of ca catching up on the status quo of Krakoa and like explaining some of the some of the thinking around it. And they 
quickly say that this, not them, but I guess this status quo and everything is the sixth generation of Homo Superior, which there's some kind of you know math and breakdown there. And then also, I guess all these new mutants are maybe living in a special six-person house. I don't know. And Magic is a coffee addict with special Cohen coffee beans. And, and then we're and then we're done with Krakoa. The Star Jammers are taking them to Shi'ar space because uh, Roberto, uh, Bobby, Sunspot really wants to check in with his best friend Sam Cannibal, who has a fam has like a wife and a child and a family out in Shi'ar space. And that's all from um, Jonathan Hickman's Avengers run and then into Al Ewing's stuff. And there's a quick tease while they're riding with the Star Jammers about maybe there's something fishy about Krakoa, especially how it reacts to like other plants and other species and things like that. And then like the middle half of the issue is is the Numians kind of just hanging out with the Star Jammers. Um, and then things take a turn when they have a pirate job and they want the New Mutants to just stay on the ship. But they go, of course, and but they go because they were given a fake story, and the fake story makes them want to go. It like the Star Jammers just should have said, Hey, we're doing something very boring, just stay here. Um, and they get separated under fire by Shi'ar. And Jono Chamber, who is also a Gen X character, but pulled into the Sea Mutants book, but he's done that um, before. He finally takes off his scarf and, you know, goes all the stupid, like, sun or whatever it is, or not a sun, but he's got an energy source for a neck and a lower jaw. Um, but apparently that didn't help much. They get incapacitated, and I guess by the time they get incapacitated, and then Bobby gets kicked off the ship and meets up back up with them. And the issue ends with them surrounded by Shi'ar, but Bobby knows a space lawyer. Um, so that's the issue. In summation, I think, again, the characters, both visually and writing, pretty on point. The book looks great. There's some Easter eggs for fans of New Mutants of Gen X. Um, I thought this overall was pretty solid. I liked this more than the next issue. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I liked this more than X-Force, but not. I didn't really particularly like either book. I, I was just like, it I was like, oh, we're with the Star Jammers. What's going on? Uh, whatever. Like, that was like my thing. I was like, okay, it this is... They're out in space and Shi'ar stuff. And I've never been the biggest fan of X-Men when they're dealing with the Shi'ar and when they're in space. I find that aspect of the X-Men pretty boring to me. So having a whole book set out in space, probably not going to uh, mess around with this one too much longer. All right. And then the final book, X-Force number one. This is by Ben Percy and Joshua Kassara. And we open with a meeting of people wearing masks discussing the new mutant paradigm and they're implied to be anti-mutant type folks. And they run a blood test to verify that no one at the meeting is a mutant themselves. And it turns out that Domino has infiltrated. She tries to fuck everything up, but she gets fucked up. So, you know, who knows the status of Domino? I'm not sure if she ever made it to Krakoa. 
I mean, she was probably in the background of uh, of a like the end of House of X. I'm not sure. I mean, if she, if she did make it to Kakoa, she dies here and then no big deal, or maybe not. But if she never made it to Kakoa, she's uh, pretty fucked here, or maybe not. I don't know how the shit works. Um, back on Krakoa, Beast gets attacked by like a wild boar type thing, and Wolverine uh, is about to kill it, and then Beast's like, no, and then Wolverine's like, whatever. And he points out that there are always predators, no matter where you go. And they they shouldn't feel too sheltered and, and safe on Krakoa because they'll get stalked. And here's the actual Black Tom connection is that Black Tom, his interesting new role on Krakoa is that he serves as security because he's able to network with plants. There is both seaweed in the ocean surrounding Krakoa um, up to like 25 miles or something. And there's also like traces of like fung fungus in the air around the island, which that's a little, um, you know, sounds a little iffy and not necessarily healthy and safe, but it's an interesting idea. He's like basically there, the like central computer of their laser tripwire security system. Um, and he thinks things are tripped, but it's kidding the marauders back from Russia, including a very beat up Colossus. And he gets taken to Healer, a you know another sort of obscure character who's obviously healing folks. That's his role. That's his powers and everything. And there's a quick interlude of Professor Xavier Charles going to Sokovia from Age of Ultron, and they have just signed the treaty. And it's literally just one page, but slightly interesting. It is Sokovia, um, but I think Sokovia's been in the comics once or twice already. And some people, suddenly some people parachute in and like Black Tom is like clearly like freaking out about it. But then for a good while, no one seems to really care. They're just like, they just assume that it's mutants showing up, not using the portals. And as soon as the people, before they even hit the ground in their parachutes, they just start gunning people down. And Xavier, and the, the big thing here is that Professor Xavier seems to have been shot, maybe killed. He, um, and then that's where we go and the weird status quo, which I'm still not 100% on. I don't know how this works. He is the repository for like the souls and the blueprints for mutants and everything like that. But he's not one of the five, so like I don't know if he has to be there. Like I don't know if the 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 like blueprint things are stored within Krakoa. The five have them somewhere. I don't know how this works. Obviously, Professor X is not dead. At least you know he's not permanently dead or or indefinitely dead. And um, yeah, I thought this issue was all right. I'm interested to see. And this is down the line, how Percy is going to kind of play between this and Wolverine, because he's writing that as well, and Wolverine's character here. Um, and the next the next Dawn of X issue uh, is Fallen Angels number one, which um interested to see, you know, how I react to that. Overall, uh, 
not as impressive as New Mutants, not as impressive as Excalibur, Marauders, or X-Men. So this this right now is my bottom tier, not to say it's bad. I think Joshua Kassar's art and, and the coloring here as well by, I believe, Dean White. It's pretty interesting. I feel like Kassar's art and the coloring, it's like slightly muddy, but I guess maybe that works for X-Force. I don't think I actually really like the art in this, but I don't think it looks bad. There's moments where it looks good, and there's moments where it looks bad, and I'm scratching my head. That's it. It, it depends on the page, really. Um, I'm with you on that. Uh, on the fact that, like, yeah, this is kind of the bottom tier one for me as well. And that ending, I'm just like, oh, we're gonna immediately you're gonna kill Professor X, and that's that's gonna be your big thing after we devoted 12 issues to showing that anyone can come back. I thought that was pretty odd. Um, it didn't feel like an X-Force book at all to me. This is also the most devoid of like putting the team together. Like You spent the whole issue of this one singular event happening, um, while the other ones have been like the team coming together, here's the plot of this book. We didn't get that here. It was like, okay, here's all this stuff. There's this raid on Krakoa, and here's some characters that are here. I don't get the sense of what this book is yet. I'm not going to fully drop it. I am going to read the second issue, but... Thought that was an odd take, especially for a book like X Force. Yeah. Well, I mean, for what it's worth, you know, what is a book? What is a Marauders book? And I can assure you, the Fallen Angels book is going to have nothing to do with the original Fallen Angels. Oh, I almost sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think the like the overall actual premise and purpose of this book is explained here, but it's in one of those fucking text pages where. And and at the same time, where it is explained, like I don't 100% get the distinction between the premise of this X Force and Marauders, because Marauders there's the trade angle, but also Kitty and her team are going to show up to places and like liberate gates and get into fights and stuff if they need to. And X Force, I guess it's more the political angle. It's like nations that have not signed the treaty yet there are official responses to that and then there are the unofficial responses which they're going to do like guerrilla stuff and like propaganda and like overthrow regimes and shit like that and i i guess you know i think that's what x-force is going to be um and an interesting team i mean we'll see how beast factors into throwing over governments and stuff um but yeah i think you know definitely overall the x-men line still firing you know at a, at a very high level especially given you know the last several years um so not a stinker not my highlight though no it's it, just a lot of question marks on what exactly this is and where it's going um with, with some iffy art here and there on it all right, so that's the final book for that week as far as new books go. Now, the retro book for next week, the random numbers have decided that is going to be an April 1983 cover date book from Marvel. And this is how we're going to do it. Um, let's see if I can do this. All right, I'm going to share. I'm going to attempt to share my screen. Do you guys see these two covers on my screen? Nope. No. <laughs> just, just tell us what the books are. 
Technology. Damn it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. This is the only way we can test to see if these things work, guys. Yeah, it's, don't don't test it. For oh, oh my! There we go. God. Yee. So, our options: we've got Captain America 280 by James A. Mateus and Mike Zeck, and it's a Scarecrow appearance. Or we've got this one: Avengers 230. Yellow Jacket No More by, mm. I believe, Jim Shooter or maybe Roger Stern and Al Milgram. And this is kind of the conclusion of the Yellow Jacket arc um, dealing with the death of Egghead and Hank Pym retiring sort of as a superhero. Mm. All right, Dan, as so, always, first. Oh, wow. That's a tough one. I'm probably going to go Avengers 230. Yeah, I'm going Avengers. <laughs> okay, well, I, you know, it You're doesn't both- matter what I think. I'm, I'm doing Avengers. I'm pretty sure that's Shooter still. I don't think Stern's come on yet, but I could be wrong. But we will confirm that next week when we read Avengers number 230. And thanks for watching this episode. Tune in next time. Catch up on the back catalog. Um, bye-bye.